This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And uh, we're back with you again to talk about films and film stubs. Um, what's up, dude? Film stubs. <laughs> stubs. <sighs> you all right? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I had um, had a weird encounter with my town or in my town. With my town. <laughs> with the entire um, town. <laughs> Kind of. Ooh, ooh. Um, well, one thing is weird to me is like, so I go to the next town over frequently to get Dunkin' Donuts there because they have a drive-thru. Um, should Dunkin' Donuts just sponsor the show, by the way? I feel like they should. I know. I know. I drink it every day of my life. Like they I, should. I would love it. I'm sorry, Dunkin'. Who's dropping this opportunity to give us some Dunkin' Donuts press? Listen, I think we should do a merch collabo with them. <laughs> I like those orange and pink colors. They 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 work well together. Dude, if anybody from Duncan Corporate is listening and you want to go in on some sweatpants together, let us know. I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Just real quick, because I am there every day of my fucking life. I love um, it. Until my kitchen is done and then I'm not going to go to Duncan ever again. No, I'm kidding. Right, I right. can't say that if we're trying to get sponsored. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I will continue to go every day only if they sponsor us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I went to my, my local... My, kind of local dunk because they have the drive through mm-hmm. and um one thing that was very weird to me is i kind of i try to fade into the background as much as possible as a person like i'm not outwardly very gregarious but i am easily identifiable because i wear a head wrap every day i'm six feet tall like i laugh all the time like i'm identifiable so i pull up to the drive through which does not have a camera by the way and I said, you know, my good mornings. And I placed my order and said, thank you. And when I got to the window, there are these three women that work there that are hilarious, three young women. And one of them said, I love when you pull up because we can always tell it's you because you're the only person who says please and thank you. Oh, my God. And I was like, what the fuck is going on with this world where people are just rolling up to order things and not even saying please and thank you? Damn, dude. That is depressing as shit. Isn't that bleak as fuck? <laughs> like, it's not because of what I look like. Not because of my voice. Because I say please and thank you. I would be incredibly uncomfortable not doing that. Do you yeah. feel that way? Yeah. yeah. It's the least I can literally do where I can just say, hey, good morning. How are you? May I please have an iced coffee, a hot coffee, whatever it is. Thank you so much. Like, what skin off of my back is that, that that takes nothing. It takes nothing. I would never approach a stranger without some kind of platitude. Yeah. And, you know, too, it's like I feel like a lot is said about that kind of thing where it's like, what? well, I used to wait tables or I used to work in, you know, customer service or something. You know, I used to work 
a job where I was forward facing. And so I can't imagine not saying it to other people who work that job. Uh, and I know that that gets said a lot and I do that as well, but it's shocking because I kept thinking, oh, well, certainly everybody has had a job like that, right? Yep, but but I, nope. the more I live, I have realized there's a lot of people that never worked in food or oh, anything. Or any service, any service position yeah. at all. And I think like I'm not someone who's into forced labor, but instead of a gap year, I feel like America could start to course correct by insisting that chill, that people work for a year out of high school in the service industry. Yeah, I, I'm i like, well, what did you do in high school? Like, yeah. you didn't have a job? I had like two jobs in high school. I so know I'm like, so many people that didn't work in high school that it is shocking. <laughs> like, they they just got money from their parents. Yeah, that is super weird. Like, and, you know, working in corporate America, I was like, oh, everybody here used to work at, you know, whatever, uh, Duncan. Like I mm -hmm. did. And then they eventually got like this sit, sit down job. And people like, no, like I came from college and then went to grad school and then got an office job. And I'm like, what yeah. the fuck? That's crazy. Really? For a lot of people, that office job is their first ever job. Yeah. Which is why they're so wildly insane about trying to go back to the office because they don't know anything else. <laughs> Well, these have to be the the no please and thank you people, right? I mean, that's absolutely just is nuts to me, right? And and for me, it's kind of a balance. Like I've seen I've seen some shit in this drive through, and I've seen the the end that's kind of like the trucker guys, like the guys who every single guy who drives a truck here has a fucking Punisher sticker on the back, and I'm like, <laughs> you're not a comic book superhero. You're just some fucking dirtbag who's going to work. Like, calm down, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> and so it's like that guy who just like has no time to be nice to anybody and it, like i saw this one guy in a truck in front of me one day and he was giving them shit um and he was there for a long time like for drive by drive through standards like five six minutes and so when i pulled up i'm like hey how's it going was that guy like giving you the business like just kind of being conversational and they're like yeah he ordered the wrong thing but then took like four minutes to yell at us for making him what he ordered instead of just saying oh i'm sorry i meant this he yelled at them for four minutes instead of being like, well, this is what they're like. What do you actually want? <laughs> like, we can make you what you want if you tell us. But he would rather take the time to demean and yell at them than just say, oh, I completely messed up. What I meant was this. Dude, honestly, what is happening? What is happening yeah. with this? First of all, I I want you to name a one job that is so frantic and chaotic where you can't say please and thank you. Exactly. Like, I mean, if you were performing brain surgery, emergency brain surgery, 24 hours a day, like without stopping and no breaks, possibly you wouldn't have time. Even then you hand me a scalpel. I'm saying thank you. Fuck. That is just so, so bleak and sad. Yeah. And then the other end of it is that person who's never worked service and who is just like, give me this, bye. And like they just like take, 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 take. But it's, and, and again, like I am a different kind of person. Not only do I say please and thank you, but because I'm there so often, um, I'm always like, you know, hey, what's your name? If they're not wearing a name tag or like, thank you so much. And like every once in a while, I'll roll through and just like tip them 20 bucks because I don't tip every single day or I don't have cash every single day. But I'll just like tip them 20 bucks because no one is tipping. And like, I don't know. I just I feel like 
you know, I do the same thing at the hardware store where I was, I'm there so often that I just started like asking people like, hey, what's your name? And thank you so much for always being so nice to me and helping me. And it just seems normal to me, but I can't believe it's just weird to me that it's we've gotten to a cultural point where kindness is not expected. And I just have to say, as somebody who is your friend and has known you for a considerable amount of time and is now your business partner, I can't, like, you are, I know that, like, sometimes you you say on this podcast that you're grumpy about certain things and that you're not, you are one of the friendliest, nicest people in public that I think I've, I know. And I I mean, to the point where I'm like, are you secretly from Georgia or the South? Because you are that friendly. (laughs) to people like you're asking people's names you're like how's it going how are you how's the how's the kid how's this you know and i'm just like from a woman from new york you sure don't act like it you act like you're from georgia or you know south carolina or someone somewhere very very friendly so I, uh, and that that to me is a new york value to me where it's like you see people all the time you just start talking to them like yeah. you just know that you're just like hey we were take the same train every day yeah and like you know i like your shoes today like you just find a way in and then when you see people you can be friendly and wave and it's kind of nice yeah i love that too i mean honestly like when i was when i came back to the south from you know whatever my jaunt in on the west coast or whatever i have a friend who owns a restaurant um it's like a chicken sandwich place down in downtown and um i went in there or like it had been so long since I'd been into a business that was owned by my friend. You know what I mean? Cause it's like, yeah. I, I wasn't living I, now I live where I grew up. So, um, and I went in there and like, he was there, they called me by name. They like hooked me up, gave me some free pickles or whatever. And I'm just like, I left and I was like, I might cry. I don't know. Yeah. I'm so <laughs> overwhelmed by the friendliness of like, just having that interaction and I felt like I had not had that just based on like COVID, but also just sort of like, you know, being in the world and and not having yeah. that friendliness with people in businesses. And I just was like, I'm going to cry with this chicken sandwich right now because I'm just Aww. overwhelmed with the friendliness. So because it's nice. I mean, and that's part of it is like you want to be the person you want to see in the world. Like I want people to feel like they can be friendly with me and they should be friendly to each other. And yeah. it doesn't have to be deep. It doesn't have to be like, you know, I like your shoes. Tell me what your deepest, darkest secret is. Or like, I'll take you to therapy with me. Like, it doesn't have to be deep. Yeah. <laughs> but I just, I don't want to live in a place where people are so outwardly dismissive or cruel to each other. Um, yeah. Which brings me to my other thing that happened, which you know about, because I texted you immediately. I think oh, it's God. actually that you a voice memo immediately. Yes. I was like, I know it's serious because it's not a text. It's a voice <laughs> memo. <laughs> Like this motherfucker's talking for two solid minutes. Shit, something popped off. Dude, I love those. I love voice memos. I was like, skip me the text and too. just send me a, dis- a-, a disappearable voice memo. It's great. <laughs> and it just disappears without you even having to do anything about it. I love it. Yeah. And I freaked out. So I ended up writing a letter to the editor of our local newspaper <gasps> um, where I kind of called the town evil. <laughs> I didn't mean to insinuate that everyone was evil, but there's something evil lurking at the heart of this very Stars Hollowish town. And I had this interaction with this stranger. I left this coffee shop. 
one of the two coffee shops in town, as I've I've already discussed. It's the one that didn't have the owner who went to storm the fucking Capitol on January 6th. Right. I remember it's the not racist one. <laughs> Jesus. Such options. Whenever I see anyone sitting in front of that cafe, I'm like, so you're a piece of shit. Like, why are you giving this man your money? You're a piece of shit. Fuck. Um, so I go to the other one and it's next. To, it's it's across the street on the corner from the local pharmacy, um, mm-hmm. which has been there f- for my entire life. And my grandma still gets her meds there and everything. So it's across the street from that. And there's a little crosswalk in between. So I leave the coffee shop, and as I'm walking towards the crosswalk, there is a car parked directly in it. Mm. Like, just directly parked in there. It's a one-way street, and it's like, whoever's in this car is blocking not only traffic, but foot traffic. So I do, and you tell you. I want you to tell me if my reaction was appropriate or not. This is a stranger. The car is parked completely in the way. I walked around the back kind of into the street and then I tapped on her trunk with two fingers because there was a guy behind me as I left the coffee shop I noticed there's a guy behind me who was elderly walking to the pharmacy to do whatever he's doing so I tapped on her trunk like I can walk around you but other people can't wow she rolled down her passenger window and proceeded to yell a litany of curses at me you're a fucking asshole for doing that and blah 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 and she's shouting I walk to my car and get in, which is parked on the street. Then she gets out of her car, walks to my car, and starts pounding on the hood. She scratched the hood of my car with her rings. <gasps> and I, she was pounding on the fucking hood like I had run over one of her children. And in all this time, she could have moved her car forward and out of the crosswalk at least three, four times. <laughs> like, all she had to do was move forward Three feet. That's it. Instead, she chooses to get out of her car and just start banging on the hood of my car. And I just, I drove away because I just didn't want to deal. And Uh she was unhinged. But I wrote a letter to the editor of the newspaper because I'm like, what is going on in this town that used to be at least outwardly friendly? And now we have this. And I've seen this in other ways. Like I've seen it at the grocery store. I've seen parents yelling at families in the park. Like there's just something horrible happening in the world right now and it has seeped into this town yeah i i'm gonna go back to like what the you your action in the moment which is correct in my opinion i mean first of all it's like illegal to park at a crosswalk right because it's like i don't know i mean people are walking what if there was somebody who was using a wheelchair or like a stroller i mean come on and as a driver Maybe you're up your own ass and you don't even really know what's happening. But like, you know, if you're doing something illegal, if you're in somebody's way and somebody tells you that you're in the way, I would be like, okay, cool. Yes, yes. I was not paying attention. And yes, I see that there's an old man coming down the the street wanting to use this crosswalk that I'm in. And she was texting. That's all she was doing. She was texting. It's like, but like, honestly, like as a citizen, right, you're sitting here going like, I see a situation that's incorrect. I'm going to lightly suggest, right? A two-finger tap to me yeah. is a, is fine. If somebody did a two-finger tap on my trunk, if I was Thank in the you. way, I'd be like, oh shit. Yes. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I see, I see the me. situation. Yes. People have done it to me. Like you're parking next to close. I can't get out. That kind of thing. Great. Fine. I'll move. But see, here's the thing. 
like, and I don't know if this is a, a more recent phenomenon, maybe, um, but people do not want to be told that they're wrong about some shit. Like, that's yep. the thing I find that that's where, that's where the overreaction from her comes in is where she's like, who the fuck is this bitch touching my property? That's another thing. People mm-hmm. are really uptight about you touching their property. And then she doesn't want to be told that she's wrong about something. And yep. she's just like, well, my reaction now is to just completely lose it on this woman who wasn't doing anything but trying to help me be a better person or whatever. <laughs> like... <laughs> She didn't want the help. She doesn't want to be a better person. She wants to be the oblivious asshole that she is. And I'm like, this is not cool to me. Like, there is, there is, so right now there's a, an elderly man walking behind me and, like, truly shuffling. Like, he's yeah. not, like, there are no sparks coming out of those heels. He is shuffling. And I'm like, if he approaches your car, he's going to have to walk into the fucking road. And I don't even know if he can see. <laughs> like yeah. I don't know anything about this dude other than right. he is walking very slowly and needs some at least the cushion of the crosswalk to get to where he's going. Well, but the problem is too is that like you know, you being an advocate for this sweet old man. We don't know anything about him. Maybe he's a murderer. We don't know. Could be a Nazi. We don't know. <laughs> but just as a, as a old man, we don't know his vision, we don't know his status, we don't know anything. But that puts you in this weird position where now you could potentially have some kind of weird fucking conflict with somebody because you just want to do the right thing. And I think that is what prevents people from wanting to do the right thing. Is Absolutely. that you're like, "Fuck, well, if I, you know, tell this person that they're doing something wrong that they are going to freak out on me and it's going to set off this whole chain of events so i'm going to stay silent i'm going to stay like back in the shadows and not help somebody that needs help because the consequence of getting you know a fucking what if this woman pulled a gun on you i mean it's just crazy everything's crazy right now and that's why i didn't like go to her window and say hi excuse me you're parked in the crosswalk because she could have pulled the gun on me and blown me away right there I didn't want to physically have to talk to a stranger who is outwardly already very rude. Yeah. In order to get her to move out of the way. So yeah. I did what I thought was the next best thing, which was like a light tap on the trunk. Now, if I had broken her windshield or like punched through it like fucking Thor, I understand she'd be pissed. <laughs> like if I dented her fucking trunk by the way she was pounding on my car, I'd understand that. <laughs> well, but in, in two in other cities, if she if y'all lived in a bigger city, she would she's lucky to get a two finger tap. If you know what I'm saying, yeah. Like a lot of people just let you know up front that you're in the way. Like they just be like, "Fuck you, get out of the way." <laughs> Right. (laughs) The fact that you were even at all nice about it and didn't even want to speak to her is, I think, a level of restraint that she should appreciate. Right. And for all she knows, this is the other thing that's wild to me. So she's face down in her phone, not looking behind her. What if I had fallen or slipped into her car? Like, what if I just like (laughs) slipped and like had to grab onto her car? Was she going to come after me like a fucking asshole? Slipping into a car. She didn't didn't know what What if I rolled into her fucking car? She didn't know. What if I had Heelys on and one of the Heelys <laughs> popped out when I wasn't expecting it and I grabbed onto her car for balance? She doesn't <laughs> fucking know. <laughs> but it's just, it made me so sad that I genuinely wrote a letter and became that person that was like, what happened to this town? Because truly, I know what has happened to this town. I've been coming back here for the, you know, the 23 years that I didn't live here. My grandmother has lived here the whole time. I've experienced the changes of this town and it wasn't that great to begin with. <laughs> yeah. There wasn't that. I mean, I wrote a whole book about it. Wasn't that great to begin with, but there was a level of kindness and comfort here that 
is now gone. I think that's a, that's happening all over the place, and that's probably why um, you know I always see stickers on people's cars in small towns to be like, "Keep blank weird, keep blank." Right. You know, it's like, yeah, because dicks are coming in and they're disrupting exactly. all of the the vibes so i don't know my bumper sticker for a warwick would be like keep warwick mildly racist but mostly nice <laughs> i feel the longest bumper sticker in the world keep warwick super old-fashioned a little bit racist <laughs> and lots of farms let's just keep it that way <laughs> but you know it's it, it it goes back to what you were saying, though, about sort of your instinct to help people. Because um, that is something all, I also noticed about you. Not to make this all about my observations of you. Aww, but I do believe that you're the type of person that wants to make things right. And I've seen it in action. Like, I've seen you call out some bullshit in public. Yeah. And, you know, the instinct to do it seems so natural. Like, I'm just sort of like, of course you want the best for people. Especially elderly people. I mean, come on. Like, you have, you know... You're you're so kind towards, you know, people who are struggling and people who are older and people who just, you know, people who just aren't like out in these streets, like nimble and basically running around with fucking platform Fila sneakers on and shit. <laughs> like, I'll even help so. you if you got on platform Fila sneakers. You can't walk <laughs> in those shits. I'll hold the door for you. But yeah, I do. I do. And again, it comes naturally to me just because that's. It just does. I can't even explain it, but I, yeah, you know, I can't tell you how many times in LA I've seen someone struggling and been like, do you want me to push you in your wheelchair as far as you need to go? Like, yeah. I don't have, I, I'll take the time. You want to go two blocks away? I'll push you. Like, I don't care. Yeah. But it's, at the same time too, it's like that, that is like what I love about you, but it also like weirdly makes me worry about you sometimes. Cause again, like now, what if you come in contact with some like fucking lunatic who's like, yeah, fuck you with your help. I don't, you know, like, I don't know. I just am like, I want you to continue like being yourself and being a nice person and helping people. But it, it, it's sad that that behavior is, is seen as aggressive to certain people. I don't know yeah. what that is. And I have to temper it. I think you're absolutely right that now I'm realizing this is not a world. It doesn't mean I have to stop doing kind things, but this is not a world where I can expect that it will be met with kindness in return yeah and so i just have to kind of pick and choose where I, like the next time i see someone parked in the middle of a crosswalk i'm not saying shit and if i see an older person behind me trying to get across what i'll do is i will wait and help them instead of yeah. talking to the asshole in the car well yeah and it's just really like again i think it comes from a place where people just don't want to be told anything about themselves they don't want to they don't want to feel like they're doing anything wrong they don't mm -hmm. want to take responsibility for like it's not as if she was like some evil person, perhaps, but like her just thoughtlessness, just being thoughtless and in the moment and texting instead of realizing where she was. Right. 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 But, you know, she doesn't want to take responsibility for that. And in fact, she turns the situation on you and says it's like you're the aggressor. You're, you know, attacking her or whatever the fuck. And that's just scary. It's just yeah. scary to think that that could turn so easily. But completely. Well, I just think I'm going to keep saying please and thank you at the drive through. I'm going to keep keep being kind to people where I see that I can be kind to people Yes. Um, because it takes no time out of my day to do that. And I just hope that maybe more people will start doing that and we'll all calm the fuck down. <laughs> yeah, I'm just I'm I really am. I think as I've gotten older, I've really like leaned into sort of like base level kindness with like public interactions, because I think yeah. when I was 
a younger person, I definitely had an attitude about some shit. Like I would come into a public situation and be like, okay, well, I'm, you know, like I'm a bitch. I'm a boss bitch. I'm just envisioning you like kicking through some double doors and being like, I'm a bitch. I'm a lover. I'm a child. I'm a mother. I'm a sinner and a saint. Get the fuck out my way. You never met Millie the Chirico yet, but you about to. God, <laughs> that like, is, <laughs> I, I think of that now. That is so not me. Like that, that vibe is so not me. I'm it not isn't. that. And then in return, I will say about you that I have also witnessed, you are the nicest person. You will strike up a conversation with anyone. Oh God. You, you always give a good laugh. Like even, because I, I remember like early on in our hanging out, like you would look at me like I was nuts when I would talk to people. And now you're like, you like kind of stand back a little bit and be like, I don't know where this is going. You're always like ready to take the knife out. And then, <laughs> <laughs> but then when people do talk with you or when you do talk with people, you're so kind and you ask questions and you're generous and like you, that is who I know you to be. I don't know you to be the like kind of you know stuck up like don't talk to me, motherfucker. Yeah, no, I I appreciate that because I feel like that came from my dad, unfortunately. <laughs> like, <laughs> like where he's like, Mister, I'm gonna tell you literally every personal detail of my life to like yeah. the woman at Chipotle. Like he's doesn't give a shit and. I would. I used to be like, oh my god, I can't believe my dad is going off like this. But now I'm like, holy fuck, I'm that guy now. I'm my dad. Where I'm just like, hey, what's going on? Yeah, you know. I adore it, and I think we need more of it and not less of it. But be careful if you're doing it, because people out here are fucking wild right now. Speaking of dads, yeah, and fucking mm. wild dads. Mm-hmm. So Ooh. we have a theme this week that I will say, <laughs> first of all, it was, you know, it's again, we have another holiday coming up, right? We have a, we have a celebration of fathers coming up. And uh, <laughs> we knew that, obviously. And we were like, hey, we, we should do something around Father's Day. And then Danielle came up with the name of this theme and it was in the calendar with no movies attached for like six months. <laughs> and every time I would go look at our shared document, I'd be like, what is this? This is like theme that's just dangling out there on the document. And it would make me laugh every single fucking time. So Danielle, tell the people what the name of the theme is this week. Our theme this week is dad murdered someone. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to. <laughs> Happy Father's Day. Dad murdered someone. Yeah. So last year when we did Father's Day, we our theme was robot dads. Yeah. <laughs> and uh we loved it. We we did uh Robocop and Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And it was a blast. And we got to talk about robot dads, which are very important. But you know, now we have another side to fatherhood, which is Sometimes fathers murder people. Yeah, a lot. A lot. And uh, honestly, I can't think of two better movies that properly display this concept than the ones that we picked. Well, let, I, I will I will also remind people that I've never met my dad. Yes. So a lot of my dad feelings are maybe unhinged. Maybe they come out of nowhere because all I know of dads is other people's dads in movies. Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, the dads I've met 
and movies. That's it. I've never met my dad. So the concept that, that I love about this theme, this dad murdered someone, is that for some reason, I feel like a lot of movies tend to present parents in general, but fathers in particular, as always on the edge of going fucking nuts. Like, parenthood is so intense for them yeah. that they will eventually snap. Yes. And I have to say, uh, from the other side of the coin, I know my dad. I uh, He is in my life almost every day. And I still fucking think <laughs> of dads as being unhinged. Like, to me, I feel like... <laughs> <laughs> like I was like oh I had a really nice dad that was there the entire time I was alive and I still think he could fucking kill somebody not gonna oh, lie yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's still got it in him he's still yes. got it in him just bubbling under the surface oh completely completely oh god and your dad was in the military so that like doubles down on he I might have already killed somebody <laughs> have you ever asked <laughs> oh listen here's the thing about my dad in the military okay I, I would I would frequently be like, Dad, did you go to Vietnam? Did you blow up buildings? Like, what'd you do? And he's like, No, I sat in an office for forty years and did <laughs> not planning, planning. That was like, what is planning, Dad? I don't know. Just a very you know varied things like you know bringing boxes to this place. I'm like, okay, so <laughs> you your military time was. N- not zero dark 30 is what you're telling no. me. You're telling me. Or that it you... was, and he's trying to cover. <laughs> <laughs> My dad is like one of the nicest people of all time, probably to a fault sometimes. That doesn't mean he couldn't murder someone. I mean, just <laughs> him being extremely nice, in fact, is real sus. I, I hate to say it, dad. I love you, but you know, your demeanor is also Ooh. sus for murdering. I'm just Which saying. Which is kind of evident in your film. For sure. Like, you're a little too nice right now. We need to start checking this air, the surrounding area. Yeah. See if there's any, like, family, like, rampage killers going on here. And listen, your movie, again, a first-time watch for me. (gasps) What? Oh, yes. And and it's shameful because I'm a huge fan of the director slash lead actor of your film, and I never saw this. But he was nice, too, and then he wasn't. Oh, yeah. And then he was nice in a very creepy way. <laughs> well, I, listen, I'm so excited to talk about these films this week. I think the theme is really fun. I'm so glad that we finally have movies for this dangling theme that was just in a document. <laughs> you're like, you're scrolling a sheet and you're like, dad murdered someone. Huh. What is that again? <laughs> Who murdered? We're doing is it. This, is this a theme? Is this something she found out? Is this like... <laughs> is this, is this an, accidentally, an accidental secret that just got revealed? On a Google document. Also, I want to know if your dad still speaks fluent Italian because I've been popping back into my my opera lately. Yes, and um, I need to know if I'm pronouncing some things correctly when I am sh- and shout singing. Yes, he he definitely speaks fluent Italian, and will do it with anybody Italian that he meets in public. He's like, let me test this out. And then he starts yeah. speaking Italian and they're like, sir, I'm from Bay Ridge. Like, I, <laughs> I just work at Olive Garden. I don't speak Italian. <laughs> when you're here, you're family, but we are family that does not communicate with Italian. 
Listen, but when it comes to like, let's get on a Zoom call with my dad. He will help you yes. with all kinds of pronunciation. And Oh my God, um, I would be so excited. Okay, the next time you go hang with your parents, we'll have to Zoom call and I'll keep a list yes. and be like, all right, am I pronouncing Pio correctly? <laughs> You're like, what is, what is, what am I doing here? Yeah. Because Mozart would be pissed. Yeah, um, nope, he'll help you out. No problem. Oh, uh, I can't wait. I'm so glad you know your dad and have it. <laughs> dead and again happy father's day let's get into some murder murdering deads um my film is was released in 2001 it was directed by bill paxton the screenplay is by brett hanley and the title of my film is frailty wake up i've got something to tell you what's wrong there are demons among us i can see the demons while other people can. I'm scared, Dad. So, first time watch, let's do the checklist. From the 2000s, stressful. Correct. <laughs> Childhood trauma, check. Childhood trauma, maybe gave you nightmares. Definitely, all all, all check marks, of course. <laughs> so my, re- my record remains strong. Oh my God, you are, you know, a hundred for a hundred at this point. You're just really, you really haven't strayed far from your intention to give me a fucking heart attack. So. <laughs> well, tell me. So I'm going to give, I'll give my one sentence synopsis and a little summary of the film. Um, but then I really, I want to know what you thought of this film before I get into some more info about it. So, oh, so my one sentence synopsis of Frailty. When a single father of two starts calling people demons and killing them, a teenage boy has to decide if his father has lost his mind or truly hears the word of God. Excellent. Excellent synopsis. So, <laughs> so this film is set in 1979, and it's about the Meeks family. And the Meeks family is the father character who's just called Dad, played by Bill Paxton, um, and these two young boys, Fenton Meeks, who's 13, and his younger brother, Adam, who's like three years younger than he is. Mm-hmm. And they their, their mom died giving birth to Adam, so it's kind of always been these three. And Fenton is sort of the caretaker of the family. Like, he makes dinner, and even though he's a teenage boy, it's 1979, and he kind of, like, helps out. And they live behind this rose garden in town, and it's set in Texas, um, and his dad's a mechanic. So, but what really mm-hmm. happens is that this dad is really loving and kind and attentive. And then one day out of nowhere, he wakes them up at night and basically says, hey, so this angel came to me and God wants me to start killing demons. um, And he's going to send us a list when the time comes and he's going to show us some secret weapons that we have to use to kill them. Nighty night. (laughs) Fuck. And Fenton, from Jump, is like, this is not okay. (laughs) Adam is young enough and kind of innocent enough to be like, cool, I love my dad. I'll help him do whatever he needs to do. But Fenton is not on board. And so we do see that he kind of, he prefaces all of this murder with, it's kind of cloaked under the the auspices that he's helping God. And he eventually comes to be known as the God's Hand Killer, um, because there's a note left with the first body that the FBI finds, but then there's never another body again. So they just kind of know this guy is like killing people and leaving notes, but there's no trace. Um, so that's how they know he's still active. Yeah. So just on the on its on its front, what did you think of this movie? 
Oh, Lord. On the front part of it. Um, you know, I, to me, it made me immediately think about people who grew up in like really religious households. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I grew up Catholic, obviously. And, but, you know, and there's a lot of baggage to unpack from that experience. But the kind of fire and brimstone type of, I don't know. It, to me, I was like, oh, fuck. Like, the, like he seemed... <laughs> the dad was great until he wasn't great. And that's yeah. kind of like what I was kind of questioning was that I was just like, you know, obviously he's a single dad. It's probably pretty hard for him to like raise these two boys. But that all of a sudden he's kind of turned... Like he does this kind of like moment where all of a sudden... It's just he's come almost like a completely different person. Then I was thinking like, oh, well, chances are, you know, they're probably religious. And then I was thinking like, damn, it is so hardcore to be in that type of environment, right? Like to have the hardcore, again, like super religious, super like, you know, Old Testament-y type of thing. And I don't know. I immediately felt for those kids. I mean, that's kind of how I felt was that they just had suddenly this huge, weird scenario in front of them Mm -hmm. and they don't know how to react. You know, I agree. And what's wild about that, too, is that it's the religion does kind of come out of nowhere. Like when they show this family pre God's hand killing um, they're just like these two little boys who are excited to go see the Warriors or like go see yeah. movies. And dad comes home and he doesn't like, you know, slap a Bible on the table and say like, it's time to pray. Like, yeah. it doesn't seem like there's any religion in their life until yes. this moment, which is yeah. so creepy to have religion introduced in that fire and brimstone way when there yeah. seems to have been like none. Like, they don't show them yeah. going to church. They don't show them like, you know, like, he does kind of... They do actually show the kids in the beginning walking out of, um, like, Adam singing a church, a Catholic song or a song from church. And it's like an after-school kind of place, like an after-school Bible study kind of thing. Yeah. But that's the most of it. And that even, to me, doesn't insinuate that they're super religious, but just, like, that's kind of where kids in small towns go. Yes. In this time frame after school when there's nowhere else to go and nothing to do. Like, go to the Bible school. Yeah, I got to say, I think that the movie could have set that up a little bit better, yes. you know, although I did think about it in terms of, well, the fact that it didn't set it up at all and it didn't give you any indication that the father was either, you know, suffering some from some psychotic episode or was super religious or something. The fact that it just comes from literally nowhere, it seems I was like, is that scarier? Is that like even more terrifying yeah. to notice like, oh, dad's making us macaroni and cheese and the next day he's putting axes through people. Like, well, how the <laughs> fuck does that happen? But I just assumed that they were religious. But again, I don't think the movie set it up that way. Like you said. You're right. You're right. And I, I completely agree that it. I wish they'd either emphasized it more or not included that scene with them walking from the Bible school. So it seemed even more intense yeah. When he's like, oh, shit, dad's talking about God. But I think that what they do well, though, even with that scene is being in there. I think what they do well is is kind of telegraphing how freaky it is for kids when their parents do start saying shit out of nowhere. Yes. And it doesn't always have to be like, we're going to be killing some demons. It could be like, we're moving 
to Ann Arbor and they're like, yeah. what's like when like when adults kind of have their own life and they don't discuss things with kids. That's how it feels as a kid. It's like yes. all, all this information is completely off off kilter. Yeah. Um, so I felt that as a, as a viewer because they don't really tell you exactly what's happening. And the way that the the way that the movie is set up is that Matthew McConaughey, who plays the older version of Fenton, Matthew McConaughey walks into the FBI station one day and says, I know who the God's Hand killer is. It was my brother. And then he uses that moment to kind of tell Agent um, Doyle, who's played by Powers Booth, yes, the story of like how his brother became the God's Hand killer and it started with his dad. Um, so I kind of like, there are some tropes here that I really love and that's one of them, like the the notion of passing down this murder instinct or this like, you know, this is the family legacy, like not all family legacies are great. Um, so that was kind of cool to me. And I just really liked, I like the setup of the film being being such that like you never quite knew where it was going or what was going on definitely that definitely that so just to kind of talk i did i did some research for this but i don't want to overwhelm people about it um bill paxton died in 2017 when he was 61 it is so sad i think about bill paxton and bernie mac all the time they were both taken from us way too soon (laughs) definitely no and i hate it no, I hate it too. And um, that was another thing that I kept thinking about during this film is just how awesome Bill Paxton was. I I mean, I basically didn't know. I only knew about like his early stuff, like his, you know, I don't know, like when he was younger and he was in LA and he was directing the Fish Heads video. Yes. I only knew that like in the past, like maybe 10 years or something. And it just blew my mind because he seems so cool. And like, I mean, I don't know if anybody has really dug into like his early career, like his taking Tiger Mountain type stuff. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's amazing. Like you, you go, oh, he's he was Chet from Weird Science, but then he was also making like fucked up art films and absolutely you know and i'm just like god that is so cool i love him and this i did find one article on texas monthly by sean o'neill that was actually written just a couple of months ago in april um and the article is about how frailty was this like wonderful film and bill paxton was this wonderful guy but basically in this article the way that the way that it starts i think is really indicative of kind of who Bill Paxton was. So if you're only fam- familiar with him from one or two movies, or maybe you know o- only his movies, this article is really a great read. Um, I think that it kind of helps cement and solidify who he was as a person and not just who he was as like a, an actor or a director or somebody who was working. It kind of goes into his life a little bit. Um, and I'm going to quote here because I love this paragraph. The late Bill Paxton was something of a renaissance man. The Texas native got his start in movies as a set dresser, procuring props for Roger Corman. He dabbled in music rather successfully with his new wave band, Martini Ranch. On screen, Paxton contained similar multitudes, playing crude bullies and punk rock vampires, chasing tornadoes and romancing Shirley MacLaine, and heroically not throttling Gloria Stewart after she jerked him around for three hours in Titanic. 
<laughs> Paxton could do prestige HBO shows and silly kids movies, cowboy westerns, and broad comedies. His sudden death in 2017 was a tragedy, cutting short a still thriving career at the too soon age of 61 and denying us all the pleasure of watching the actor bloom gracefully into the more wizened roles like his hero, Clint Eastwood. But arguably, Paxton had already lived enough lives for several men. Wow. And I love that that paragraph. I just love that description. Like, just imagine living a life so big that... It can't even be contained. Like he he did everything he wanted to do. He did, he tried everything that was of interest to him. He tried it, and again, musician in a new wave band. Yeah, and he comes from like this time. This he comes from Fort Worth, Texas. Like he's just from this this place that I don't think was at the time that he was raised. At least it was natural for him to really pursue this stuff in such a big way. And so there's something really cool about his whole identity and his yeah. whole per- I, I just I miss him as a person I think because he was weird and cool and tried so many different things that based on what we've seen on screen alone I feel like he was probably a great person yeah Lo- I, I just love the idea of somebody coming from Texas to LA and and just kind of falling into like a new wave scene and you know running around and you know making weird art films and hanging out with cool people and stuff. I mean, I don't know. I just think that's really cool. And I feel like, yeah, we lost him way, way, way too soon. And this a movie like this, I mean, anytime I see him, actually, like anytime he pops up in a movie, like, I mean, shit, we play Near Dark on TCM all the time. And every time we play it, I'm like, God, I love Bill Paxton. What the fuck? I can't believe that he's dead. So I, uh, yeah, I re- there was like a lot of uh, missing him when I was watching this movie, right? Yeah, completely, completely. And this this is also something I love from this this article as well. Again, Texas Monthly, Sean O'Neill, look it up. Um, he calls this movie, Frailty, a lean psychological drama that's tinged with Southern Gothic flair. And I do really dig that because that is exactly what it is. It is a psychological drama that keeps you on your toes throughout. But it has such it has such a, a, a connection to that Southern Gothic kind of mentality that yeah. it's almost evident to see his influences in some of the shots like i i don't know how to explain it um yeah. specifically but like you can see you can see paxton's influences throughout this film and he's not yeah. playing it safe and he's not doing what a lot of first-time directors would do which is like i just want to make sure i get another job <laughs> you yeah. know he's just kind of like this is the story i want to tell no matter how weird it is and i'm gonna tell it and even Roger Ebert, you know, this movie was not, it was critically well-received, but it was not a big earner at the box yeah. office. Um, but in Roger Ebert's review, he said, and I quote, perhaps only a first-time director, an actor who does not depend on directing for his next job, would have had the nerve to make this movie. Totally. And I think that's true. Like, he was the exact right person to make this film. Yeah, and I was thinking that too. I mean, just in terms of the religious turn that the father takes, I'm like, oh, growing up in Texas, I'm sure he knew quite a number of dads who believed that, you know, you should kill evil people, you know, because God told you to, you know, I mean, the Southern Gothicness of of that type of mentality, I feel like just kind of like is always in stories like this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I completely. Yes, absolutely. Because I think that the other thing that that I get from Southern Gothic films, aside from what you just said, is there's always this like thin line of punishment that runs through the narrative. 
And a lot of times that punishment could come from religion or it could come from, you know, misogyny or it could come from like racism, lots of different ways. But that to me is like a constant theme or trope in Southern Gothic films. It's like, where where does the punishment come in? Who's being punished and why? And in this film in particular, I feel like the punishment escalates in such a wild way that you kind of can't help but com- but compare it to other films that you've seen in this trope that have you know, this kind of um, allegiance to to punishment. And what I, so what I love about this this movie is, and I saw it in the theaters and loved it right away. Uh, I was wow. one of the one of the people who saw it in the theaters and absolutely adored it. Um, <sighs> it's because it's so goddamn weird. It's just weird. Um, but I also love the kids in this movie. Oh, like God, the kids in this movie acted their asses off. And I think that, so you've got Matthew McConaughey, who plays an older Fenton Meeks, but Matt O'Leary plays the young Fenton and does such an incredible job. Oh, totally agree. Man, he was so good. Oh, the emotion that comes out of this kid is wild to see on screen. And you kind of, it made me wonder and think like, well, that has to also be a result of Bill Paxton as a director. Because an actor who's a director knows how to really get emotion out of their cast. Like they know what to say to kind of get actors going. Um, And Jeremy Sumter, who plays a young Adam, um, another just beautiful job, like just really innocent, but also kind of um, that sniveling little brother, but who also shows so much heart and so much care and so much worry. Oh, I just thought these kids were perfectly cast. Yeah, they are so good. I mean, honestly, like that little kid, I mean, Matt O'Leary, he was, I was like, wow, what a great actor. I wonder if he's still acting. Um, I looked him up. It seems like he is. But um, as a, like he communicates so much about, like the, there's a part of the film where, you know, essentially uh, as the, as the situation is escalating between his father and them, he gets like locked in a basement. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's like you just said, it, there's this concept of punishment that's running throughout this film and within like Southern Gothic storylines. Um, and he is being punished essentially for not being, I guess, a true believer or yeah. questioning his father's, um, you know, authenticity when it comes to this message that he's receiving from God. And like it's scary as shit. Like you're like yeah. that's a part where I really began to feel like the intensity of sort of religious conviction. And I was like, man, this guy, this kid is being locked in a basement. They're not giving him anything. His brother's like trying to pour like drops of water in the cracks of the fucking floor, and um, he's not able to eat or anything. And just like the little kid, this kid actor is having to go through all this, and he's doing a great job, like communicating the the way that that is so inherently fucked up, you know? Completely. And there's some steps even before that that make you that made me think he was so great at this job because essentially, you know, dad comes home one day and he's like, our family was chosen for a job. Um, God's going to send me a list of seven names and reveal three weapons and then we're going to kill some demons. And they're like, what? So he does find this axe which has Otis carved in the handle. And I read somewhere that Bill Paxton um, wanted the axe to kind of have its own personality. <laughs> <laughs> as as they do 
So he gave it this name, and then he finds a pair of gloves and a pipe. So it's like this real fucked up game of Clue right off the bat. And then God sends this list of seven names. Like, why can't it just be one? God always goes so big. It can't just be like, (laughs) here's a demon, like one dude maybe. But, you know, dad's like, nope, Judgment Day is here. I'm totally into this. Um, And Fenton kind of feels like it's a dream at first, because the next morning after his dad reveals this story to him, he's like, totally normal. And then one of the greatest scenes is when he's getting out of the car, they're walking into school, and dad just leans over out of the car window and is like, "Uh, yo, don't forget what I told you about those demons. And he's like, fuck! (laughs) (laughs) Those demons, am I right? He's like, god damn it! I thought you forgot about that shit, dad! He stops in his tracks and is like, are you fucking kidding? Like, what? (laughs) Such a great scene. And then I love, I also love the scene where he gets, where he first gets the list. So dad's a mechanic and he's under the car and there are these sparks flying. And then all of a sudden he sees this like very intense um, scene of like a church, like the car turns into a church and then there's an angel descending with a flaming sword. But what I love about the scene is they pull back and all of a sudden you just see him laying under this car with sparks flying around his head. So it does a really good job of pointing out this constant question of like, is this guy unhinged or not? Like this, he could be seeing this vision because he's in a place where there are sparks flying around his head. It's not a flaming sword. It's not an angel. Um, so when it comes time to do the first kill, Dad comes home with this woman. She's tied up and gagged. The other thing that I really love, I love Bill Paxton as a director of this film. What I love about him as an actor in this film is that he plays it scared. Every single kill, most times he's talking to his kids, he's not being like that hard bully. He's like terrified. Yeah. And so he is wearing these gloves because, you know, once he touches their skin, he gets a vision of their evil deeds. But when he starts to kill, when he kills her with this axe, we don't see it. He plays it all off screen, which in that article with Sean O'Neill, he pointed out was very Hitchcockian, like that kind of Hitchcock dissolve. Yeah. Um, And then they bury her in the Rose Garden. And guess what? The boys watch the whole thing from her being dragged into the fucking garage to being axed. And then they have to help bury her. So there is just like trauma all over the place right away. Oh, God. No kidding. And adult Fenton, you know, we kind of are cutting back and forth. And adult Fenton is like, well, I know where all the bodies are buried. So Agent Doyle's like, all right, I'll go with you. And we'll take a little road trip and you can show me these bodies. And P.S., Doyle's mom was also killed in an unsolved murder. So he's like not feeling this guy who's like, oh, also my family is all murderers. <laughs> yeah. What what did you think of McConaughey in this movie? It felt to me like, because this was from 2001, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is pretty like early McConaughey almost, right? I sort of got like the, I sort of looked into the future after seeing this movie and and thought, oh, this is like a true detective. This is what he would do in True Detective. He would be this like yes. spooky, haunted adult that has trauma from childhood or something. You know what I mean? Yes. And he doesn't smile and he's very stoic. And he's also, this is so early. Like I, I when I was watching the film this time, I thought about him in Wolf of Wall Street. And he's so tempered in this movie and he's so yeah. controlled. And I think that as his career developed, and this is even like pre-rom-com McConaughey, like all the, you know, Kate Hudson movies and everything. Yeah. Um, so he's just very controlled and very like, you can tell that he's he's still kind of a student of acting at this point. Mm-hmm. That's just something that tends to come through to me when I'm watching him, him in this. Because he takes, he's like, 
he's playing it so closely and a lot of it has to do with where the movie ends up going at the end of the film mm-hmm. um but he's i don't know i really i dig this mcconaughey because i think he's he's really goofy in a lot of roles um Sometimes it's called for, sometimes intentionally. But I like seeing him have such a strong ability to act. Yeah, like those me are my too. favorite McConaughey roles, like the Dallas Buyers Club. Like I like him as a dramatic actor. Yeah, no kidding, it's awesome. So, so the sec- so the second time, Dad kills. He he buys a van. He buys a fucking murder mobile. And then he uses the kids to get to catch the killer, like to catch this guy. And so he's now one upped himself. He's like, okay, we've got this murder van. Hop out and pretend your fucking dog got caught under this car so I can kill this dude. And (laughs) Fenton's like, it's the middle of the day. And dad's like, don't worry. God's going to protect us. Like God will blind people from (laughs) from this. And he's like, what? We're in a parking lot. It's the middle of the day. So he does this second kill. And Fenton is like, Again, to his credit, he is telling his dad from jump, like, you've lost it. You've lost your mind. I want to run away. Adam does not want to come with him, so he won't leave his little brother behind. But he is trying. And he even goes to the sheriff at one point and tells him, yo, my dad's been killing some people and burying them in the town rose garden. And that does not end well. It does not end well. So this is all happening before that scene where Fenton gets trapped in... um, the cellar, which, by the way, his dad makes him dig this 10 by 15 foot cellar because Fenton is not a believer. Like he's not seeing these visions and he doesn't understand this mission. So it's that punishment, again, that's kind of leaking in and you see Fenton's hands are covered in blisters. And he's also punishing himself like Mm -hmm. he won't wear gloves and he won't, you know, he just won't listen to his father, um, even in acts of even when he's trying to be kind, even though he's having him dig this hole, he's like, you know, I won't take aspirin. And I and his dad even says at one point, um, I know you're mad at me, but you don't have to like punish yourself, which I thought was very, very poignant. Mm. Um, but Fenton's like, I'm not punishing myself. I just, I can't do this shit. I hate this. So dad traps him in the fucking cellar for the week. And it's so brutal. And Adam, the poor little thing, is trying to, like like you said, pour water down there, and he's not able to eat. And he's like, Adam says, well, Dad's thinking about letting you out at the end of the week. And Fenton's like, a fucking week? What? Mm. <laughs> like, it hits him then that his dad is really off kilter, or he believes yeah. so much in what he's doing, especially since angels have told Dad that Fenton was a demon for not believing. Yikes. So that made me think of so many instances where in real life news and in films where we see parents, you know, like Harry and like, we just see parents who are so wrapped up in the mythos of religion that they take it to this very abusive point, very yeah. abusive point. Yeah. Um, and what happens to Fenton in that that cellar as he, in that storm cellar that he dug is that he kind of, he goes insane and he's like, yeah, I finally saw God because I went nuts, like with no food and only a little bit of water, and in the dark, in a hole for a week. Of course I saw God. Yeah. So, but that that appeases his dad. He's like, okay, cool, you saw God. I don't care that you had to go nuts to do it. You saw God. That's all that matters. Right. So when he comes out, dad's like, all right, I think you're ready. It's your turn to kill someone. And Fenton and Adam, he, he, you know, they go and get this, this, this demon. um, And Fenton and Adam are standing over the body. 
and Fenton's holding Otis, the axe, and he raises the axe. And then the movie shifts into something completely different that you just have to see for yourself. Ha! <laughs> yeah, I was wondering. I was like, there's no way she's going to be able to tell the ending of this film. Hell no. Hell no. You have to see it. But I, I really was surprised by the ending the first time I saw it. And I think that's why this movie stuck with me so much. Yeah, it... It changes course several times. Mm-hmm. What did you think about that? Like, did, did you, were you like, this is horrible, or like... Well, no, I actually... I, there was a moment, I have to admit, I was a little confused, I think, where I was just like, wait a minute, what happened? Oh, wait, it went somewhere <laughs> else? Wait a minute, but wait, who was... You know, like, just the big questions. Um, without giving it away, of course. But mm-hmm. I... um. To me, it goes back to like what, you know, I think maybe you had just mentioned about Bill Paxton trying to make this like, you know, pretty taut like thriller, essentially. Yeah. And um, I think he's he did a good job. I mean, I think that obviously like there's this whole setup at the beginning that maybe, you know, needed to be a little bit more fleshed out. But then I questioned whether or not it needed to be. And then the end uh, definitely has that twist and turn that you would probably expect from a thriller like this. Like, you know, and I feel like in doing its job, it did a good job. You know what I mean? But it was, uh, it's wild. It has a wild ending. Uh, and I don't know. I, I feel like having like not seen this movie before and knowing who's a part of it. Like, I think it made me like it. Like, like if I, if I had just seen a movie that was sort of similar to this without knowing, anybody in the movie i probably would be like oh okay interesting but i like the idea that it is something that bill paxton directed and starred in and you know just knowing sort of about him and about who you know the people in this film and they're southern and i don't know i just liked it like that i liked that it was more a southern gothic tale yeah than just a i thriller, agree you know i agree and i think that i like you said because of who was involved and who was in the cast but particularly because of bill paxton yeah um i just really wanted to see what his vision was for this kind of thriller because it's it's not something he has done before he's done alien movies like you know like we said in the beginning of this reading through the texas um monthly article paragraph about him he's done a ton of different roles but not like this yeah and so this was really cool to see him direct himself and to see him that this is something that he was interested in that this type of movie is something that he was interested in in was very very cool um and yeah, I think it's, you know, it's been 20 years. I think that it deserves uh, a rewatch. And if you're looking for like a spooky movie or, you know, psychological thriller, it's a great film for that. Um, and I just mix, miss Bill Paxton every day. I do too. And for the theme, dad really sure fucking murdered someone. I got to tell you. He could not stop murdering people. <laughs> He's like, on a mi- He's like, I got seven goddamn bodies I got to collect for God. You understand the pressure of that, son? And I have to wait till he tells me to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> if he hadn't looked at that trophy or whatever the fuck he was looking yeah. at at the beginning, we would have had a different theme this week. He, but I'm oh, just absolutely. saying. If he wasn't blinded by that trophy, would we would be like, dads are great. We love them. They never do anything <laughs> wrong. And they are definitely not killers. <laughs> I just have to say, I'm so glad, again, that you have brought me to a film that I've never seen before, and yeah, definitely made me miss Bill Paxton, RIP to our king, and uh, yeah, it was great. Perfect movie for the theme. And then there's your film, well. which is also <laughs> relative, really perfect for the theme. 
Oh, I would say. I would say definitely. Uh, I'd be willing to venture you couldn't find two better movies to talk about <laughs> this week. The only caveat being that mine is technically about a stepfather. But you know what? It still works. Right? It's Oh, it absolutely works. Okay, good. My movie for the theme, Dad Murdered Someone, <laughs> is a movie from 1987. It was written... By Donald E. Westlake, directed by Joseph Rubin, and it's called The Stepfather. He's a wonderful man, and he wants to care for us. I don't know. I just, there's just something about him. When you picked this movie, I lost my mind. This was a consummate VHS rental classic in my household. Oh, yes, ma'am. I mean, listen, I have seen this movie so many times. I mean, it was, first of all, what is more 80s than a step-parent-themed horror movie, right? For real. Um, You know, lots of divorce going on in the 80s and lots of kids having step-parents come into the fold and fuck, this, this hits right on time for all that shit. And I don't um, think anyone was happy about it. I don't remember a single step-parent movie in the 80s that was like, yay, you joined our family. It was always like, this motherfucker right here. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so I think it's perfect for that, that little time and place that we had back then. And, you know, we talked about slashers before in some of our earlier episodes. Like, I think we talked about the concept of the slasher when I, we did, like, Black Christmas or something. But honestly, if you're hesitant and there's a lot of people who are, if you're hesitant about watching slasher movies, honestly, to me, The Stepfather is, I know it's considered a slasher, but it's basically like an R-rated Lifetime movie. And I mean that with all due respect. That is, Ah! I mean that with all due respect. And, you know, maybe, maybe it is like six in one and half dozen in the other when it comes to that. But, you know, anyway, I, I think this movie is both of our childhoods wrapped up into one VHS tape. I love talking about this movie on Father's Day, though, because Here's the thing. I want to say this on rec, on record. The star of this film is Terry O'Quinn, and I am sorry, Lost fans. I never saw it, but um, this is his quintessential role. Absolutely. I hate to disrupt your feelings about John Locke, but this is Terry O'Quinn's diamond And I saw Lost, and guess what I said when I saw him on Lost? Oh, shit, there's a stepfather. Exactly. This is it. This is the role that made him a star in my eyes and in most of our eyes. Exactly. And listen, I say this as someone who truly believed that his role as the dad from the D.B. Sweeney classic, The Cutting Edge, was his best. Like, I actually saw the stepfather... I think I saw the stepfather after The Cutting Edge, like not too far (laughs) after The Cutting Edge... And I was like, holy shit, what have I, what have I been thinking? This just blows my mind. Like, that's the dad? That's Moira <laughs> Kelly's dad from The Cutting Edge? And he, But here's the thing. He is legit good in The Stepfather. And he yep. doesn't even have to be. He doesn't have to be. Exactly. Like He's a great actor. Oh, my God. Like, he... Listen, for a slasher film, for an R-rated Lifetime movie in 1987, he didn't have to be this good, but he was. And this movie is made much better by him being in it, in my Mm -hmm. opinion. 
So now that we've stand a legend, a one sentence synopsis of the stepfather who at this moment, at the time of recording, has not done anything wild. Yes. At the time of the recording, (laughs) he seems to be okay. But as we know from this film, things can change on a dime. Things can change on a fucking dime. Um, (laughs) A one-sentence synopsis of the stepfather is a psycho serial killer uses a series of disguises to infiltrate the families of single mothers and their children and murdering them when they fail to live up to his incredibly high standards. Perfection. Perfection. Um, all right. So just to kind of go over some of the beats of this film. First of all, like I always say, I love when a horror movie gets going in the first few minutes. That is fucking great. Because I have seen many horror movies where literally nothing happens for 45 minutes. And I'm like, I love it when it comes out the gate. Killing. Those movies were like the monster doesn't even appear to like the end. And you're like, come on, seriously. (laughs) And then you got the stepfather that's like, here's 18 gallons of blood. Let's get into it. <laughs> Within two minutes. Yeah. You don't even know. You, you won't know what's going on, but here's a bunch of blood. Yeah. And and here's the thing. The first few minutes of the fucking movie, it's like, oh, guess what? An entire family has been murdered, including the children. Okay. In this Oof. house. And there's this man named Henry Morrison. Okay. And he's stepping over the bodies. And it's very <laughs> clear that he did this shit. It's very clear. And I said, first five minutes of the film is like right out the gate. So then he goes up to the bathroom of the house and he starts cleaning the blood off of his hands, takes a shower, and we immediately get a Terry O'Quinn dick shot. Okay. Five minutes in the film, there is full frontal male. And I know you're asking me, were you ready to see his complex sensual humanity in this moment? <laughs> Not really. To be honest, not covered in blood after he just stepped over a child that he slashed up. Yes. Was I ready to see him naked washing blood, the blood of his family off of his naked body? No, I was not ready for that. But are you ever really ready to see someone washing their family's blood off their dick? I don't know. (laughs) Not my thing. Just not my thing. I just knocked my mic over. I'm sorry. I'm so completely flustered by that sheer notion. Oh, um, Lord. Well, so yes, you, uh, right at the gate, it is intense. Right? <laughs> and after this moment, you're like, oh, this Henry Morrison guy, he's changed his entire look. Like he puts on his suit. He takes his like weird puby fake beard off walks out the door and you're like, oh shit, this guy has done this before. Like, come on, this guy is too slick of a customer to not have done this before. So then mm-hmm. you cut to a year later, Henry is now a man named Jerry Blake. He's a real estate agent in a town in Seattle or near Seattle, Washington. And he has a brand new family, okay? He's got a wife named Susan. She's played by the actress Shelley Hack, who I know was in a season of Charlie's Angels. But possibly more interesting for me personally is that she was a woman who was the representative of the Charlie perfume. Ads oh, yeah. In the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. 
That is a perfume that I wore literally every day in fifth and sixth grade. Charlie White was my signature scent in middle school. So I know a little about Shelly Hack because of Charlie White is all I'm saying. I love so much that there were all these perfumes that were marketed towards adult women, but were only purchased by (laughs) teenage girls. Yeah, it was like any kind of like drugstore perfume that looked like it was for a 47 year old was my shit. Like I'm like Navy, Charlie. What was the one? Fuck, not it's not wind song, but it was something. Uh, it was it had a very like. Um, oh, Anjali. <laughs> I just saw your shoulders moving, and I'm like, yeah, Anjali. I could bring home the bacon, fry it up in a pan, and never let you forget your old man. <laughs> At some point, I, tra- I I changed my scent to Palumo Picasso. Oh hell. Dude, it was a mess. I was a mess when Those I was in malls fifth grade. Had us. Do you remember Perfume Mania? Fuck yes. The store I was a that Perfume Maniac. You- so of course I knew <laughs> Perfume Mania. <laughs> that store gave me an instant headache. My friends always wanted to go into it, and I'm like, I will be at Cinnabon. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that was how I was able to, you know, show my opulence when I was. 12 years old was to like, get really into signature sense. Hell um, yeah. But anyway, Shelly Hack was the Charlie girl. <laughs> God bless. So Jerry Blake also now has a 16 year old stepdaughter named Stephanie, who's played by the actress Jill Sholin. Okay. And right off the bat, Stephanie is cr- creeped out by Jerry. She's like, I mean, he has a naturally psychotic look in his eye. Don't get me wrong, but he also is this like weird traditionalist. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He's so old-fashioned. And Stephanie is not only smart, but she has very good gut instincts. Oh, for sure. Which is great. I mean, we love that in A Final Girl in all horror. is like very smart, very intuitive. And she's like, this fucking guy is obsessed with like the 1950s nuclear family. And he's all about some Mr. Ed. And he loves like wearing a suit to Thanksgiving. Blew oh, my God. mind seeing that. <laughs> and so it's revealed in the in the beginning of the film that her real dad died like a year ago, a year before. And she's having a really hard time with it. And here's the thing too is like when I when I was watching it again for the episode, I was like, "Damn, so based on the timeline of the film, it seemed like the mom, the father died and then the mom started immediately dating Jerry." Yeah, like within a month, maybe. Yeah. So naturally, Stephanie has been in therapy and <laughs> and she's also been getting in trouble at school. And there's this like epic fucking scene where Stephanie oh. is fighting a girl in her art class and it's rad. <laughs> I love it. I love it. The green paint all over the place. And like, she is a scrapper. Like she's she's the kind of teenage girl that you're like, if she discovered punk rock, she would be fine. Oh my God. Totally. But, until then, she's just going to have to fight her way through it. And Jerry is like, oh, are you still upset? Because she gets expelled. And he's like, are you still ups- uh, upset? And I'm like, yeah, she got expelled, Jerry. Of course she's fucking upset. Right. And then she's like, listen, Stephanie is like, I want to get the fuck out of here. She's like, send me to boarding school. I'm so bad. Send me to boarding school. And the weirdest part is that Jerry is like, oh, no, you can't leave. Like, you can't leave the house. Like, there's not a family without children. I think that's his like one mm-hmm. of his classic lines. And it's just very creepy. I'm like, 
I don't know, Dad. Like, maybe she should go learn some law and order, but he, like, refuses to let her, you know? And it's weird. That's a weird stance for a parent to take when your kid has been expelled. Even if you're a step-parent, it's like, yeah, send her somewhere where she'll be happier and more well-adjusted. Yeah. Like, especially if I'm a stepmom and you're fighting in art class, get the fuck out of here. I don't want to deal with this shit. (laughs) Yeah. And most kids do not want to go to boarding school, but here's one that's like, please let me go. And you're like, no. But Mm -mm. the thing we find out quickly about Jerry is that he's fucking obsessed with, like, the veneer of this perfect family. Because, again, he's obsessed with tradition and obsessed with, like, family values. And when shit goes wrong in that regard, he goes into the basement and flips the fuck out on some power tools. It is scary as shit. (laughs) He... He's, again, such a good actor. That scene is wild, but he is truly going through it. Yeah. This is when Terry O'Quinn really shows his chaps as an actor, because you're like, man, he was like this really like mild-mannered, like sweet man, and then he just fucking goes insane in the basement, and you're like, damn, like, this guy's got some fucking range. So while this is happening, the brother of the wife from his former family right, that he murdered in the first five minutes of the film. This brother is trying to solve this case of his murdered sister and her entire family, which has somehow gone cold. Yeah. And this to me is the big like WTF moment for this film for me because, okay, apparently the case has gone cold because there's no prints, there's no leads, even though the paper, the local newspaper happens to have like this full-on headshot of Henry Morrison. Okay. (laughs) We need to talk about this headshot. When I saw this picture, I'm like, that alone, you're a suspect to me. You're a fucking (laughs) dude who breezes into town with a headshot. (laughs) And then you hang out with this family and you're gone? Like, what? And I gotta say, I feel like the cops in Seattle or wherever the fuck this is, they're possibly like the dumbest cops in film history. Okay. Especially because like this dude lived there and was pretending to be the dad of this family. He had to have left his prints on like the toaster or something. It's not like he lit a match and walked away from the house and burnt it to the ground. Everything was still in there. Yeah. It's like, didn't he pick up like a fucking cross stitch pillow at one point and put it back in the chair? You couldn't get prints off that. Or anything? Like, come on, dudes. He was swinging that dick all over the bathroom. He must have left DNA somewhere. He's shaving his face. Dick blood DNA? Nothing? Right? Come like, on. there's gotta be something in, lo- in that bathroom alone. Come on. Well, and then here's the thing. So the brother is, like, coming in being like, yo, we gotta figure out who killed my sister. And they're like, sorry, we can't figure this out. Here's the thing. Maybe it- you should just kill him if you see him. <laughs> <laughs> the, cop, the detective is like, you know what? You might have to kill him yourself. And I'm like, what? That scene made me laugh so hard because he's this brother, like this Jim Ogilvy guy, is like, yo, my sister and all of my nieces and nephews were fucking stone cold murdered. Can you do anything? And he's like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe if I were you, I would just kill him, kill him myself. And I'm like, that is absolutely not what this. Like, you're completely misreading the situation. You are a cop. <laughs> He is asking for your help. He's not asking for permission to become a vigilante. Yes, exactly. It's like, well, we couldn't figure it out. Why don't you just go ahead and kill this person? <laughs> um, 
so wild. So here's the thing. So, Ste- you know, Stephanie at one point sees Jerry flipping out in the basement, as he does, and she's immediately like, all right, this guy sucks. I got to figure this out. So she actually writes to the newspaper to be like, can I get this headshot of this, this full body headshot that he did at Olin Mills or wherever the fuck? Like, can I get that from you guys? And I'm sitting like, again, they have a picture of this guy. They They can't solve this thing at all. They got a picture of him. Yes. And like so when, when he was at, fuck, like, remember when, when Jerry was down at Zany's doing a set and he got that <laughs> headshot? <laughs> when he was at the comedy cellar? Still <laughs> like, nothing? Nothing, dude. So you can't just like, fuck it. I, and look, I was watching America's Most Wanted at this point. They could have done a clay head. They could have done a composite. Yes, <laughs> they ma'am. They had the tech. Yes, they ma'am. The I tech. was like, there is no way that John Walsh would not be on this shit. Come on. That's a, that's the one part of the movie that I'm like, but come on now, they would have shown the headshot and he would have been a, a caller would have figured it out immediately. A caller call would have been like, that is a fake ass beard held on with some spirit gum, and I can't believe y'all didn't figure this shit out. Just take that fucking just erase that fake beard from the picture and you got him. Yeah, because Jerry Blake is out here. That's the thing is that he's not like he's not sitting in the basement and doing nothing else. He is out here like co-mingling with the neighborhood. He's having fucking barbecues. He's a fucking real estate agent, meaning his photo is probably on people's signs in their front yard. And yet they're like, uh, who? Yo, I guess we're just gonna have to get some guy to kill him so we don't have to do anything. And he's like 20 minutes away. (laughs) So crazy. So, you know, Stephanie asked the paper for this photograph and duh, you know, she, Jerry comes home, checks the mail, sees, huh, a newspaper is writing my stepdaughter and then realizes that she asked for his goddamn photo. And then he's like, oh shit, she knows. And then he fl- he, fl- he transfers it with another headshot of some other person. He does, he does some 80s Photoshop, which is basically, <laughs> I have to go to the photographer in town and just buy a fucking headshot from somebody else. <laughs> and then I'm gonna put it in this envelope and put it back in the mailbox so my daughter thinks it's not me. And so so what ends up happening is Stephanie gets her therapist involved. And you know, he of course, he's the only adult in her life that she can actually trust at this point. And so the therapist is like doing a little of his own dirty work. He actually goes, he pretends to be interested in a house and just so he can meet with Jerry to kind of sniff him out. And Jerry ends up murdering the therapist (laughs) in the house, okay? He puts the guy's body in his own damn car. He lights a rag in the gas tank and then pushes the car down the embankment. A classic murder move. Dude. And this guy is no limit, as we know. And Stephanie, (laughs) meanwhile... Comes home, he comes home the next day and tells her that her therapist is dead. He drove down an embankment or whatever lie he created. And then, weirdly enough, I think Stephanie starting to, like, warm up to him a little bit, which is a really weird moment because, you know, she was so suspicious of him. But then she's like, well, the paper sent me a photograph and it's not him. And then, you know, I don't know. He seemed to be sensitive, telling me that my therapist mysteriously died. So she starts warming up to him. But then, of course... That goes out the window when she's out one night with one of the guys from her school and it's a guy she has a crush on and they start kissing a little bit in front of her house and he opens the fucking door, sees that it's happening and loses his goddamn mind. 
is like claiming that this kid is like sexually molesting his daughter and it's disruptive to the perfect nuclear family which he wants so badly and then truly from this point all hell breaks loose i mean that's all i can say oh breaks loose all over the place yes and and like i said earlier this entire film is terry o'quinn for me i mean he did not have to be this good at all mm-hmm. but he was and we are thankful and they actually made they ended up making like two i think two sequels to this movie one in 89 and i think the other one was in like 92 and there was apparently a remake of it in 2009 um where i think that in like penn badgley or somebody is like there's not the daughter it's like a son or something um all i know is that it has an 11 percent approval rating on rotten tomatoes which i gotta be honest has that ever fucking stopped me from watching a goddamn thing? No. Hell no. <laughs> so I might have to crack it open. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but I love that you picked this movie. I love this movie. <laughs> I think that the ending of the movie is so, it's still so great in that slasher tradition, but it takes yeah. it to a, just another level. Um, and I love it. I just love watching him become unhinged all over this movie because like i said i feel like all dads are always on the cusp of snapping oh yeah and it's it's also again like nude equity as we talked about in the dongasans i mean this mm-hmm. may this may be an early early entry into the dongasans who knows but like there, there ain't a naked woman in this movie at all and then you see dong within the first five minutes i think i mean i don't know if that's feminist but i'm just saying and i gotta say it's 80s dong so there's no trimming happening it is oh natural dong there's no dong extensions like they are apparently using in minx people people have been pointing that out to me by the way since we talked about the dong assance they're like well did you know that they're using like prosthetic extensions on the dongs and minx and i'm like what Remember when Kurt Braunholer was on the show and he was telling us about the prosthetic they used in Boogie Nights? Like, we've been on this prosthetic dick beat for a while. Yes. And I, like, again, a salute to Terry O'Quinn who's like, we're showing it, warts and all. Like, this is just who I am. This is my 80s dick in full view. Good for him. Good for what him. An, what a note to end on for the stepfather. <laughs> Listen, I truly loved talking about these movies this week. Like, I, de- I definitely think that, like, they're perfect for our theme for yes. Father's Day. Dad's out here murdering people left and right. Stepdads, biological dads, dad figures. And I hope you had a good time talking about <laughs> these movies. Hopefully you watch them. Definitely got to watch them. You got to watch them. I love these movies. I think it was a good mix this week. And um, yeah, like you said, that was hanging out in the calendar for a while. And I'm like, what are we going to do with this? I just feel like it's a good, something good to dig into. And then when it hit, it hit hard. And you put in your movie, I laughed my ass off. <laughs> and I love any chance to talk about Bill Paxton. We miss that dude. We miss him. RIP. We miss you. We miss you, legend. Um, okay. So if you want to email us, please do so. We're at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Please, for the love of God, we would love to hear your stories about movie experiences. Um, if you 
were watching The Stepfather in 1987 and you were not prepared to see complex sensual humanity, please tell us. If you're out here with a film club and you're watching movies, you're just doing weird shit with movies, just email us. I saw what you did, pod at gmail.com. And you can also uh, write to us in real life because we have a P.O. box. So you can send us handwritten letters if you happen to know like someone in your family is the God's hand killer. Um, you, know, you can let us know. I don't know what we'll do about it. We might have to contact the authorities. <laughs> but let us know. Give us your seven. Give us your list of seven, um, and you can find us on our social media at I Saw Pod on Instagram and Twitter. If you do want to send us handwritten letters, our PO box is listed on the link tree in our Instagram bio. Um, and you should also tell some friends to follow us. We're great, and then tell those friends then what they should just follow us and leave us five star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Definitely, 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 and. If you are so inclined, we will have Dunkin' Donuts. Mer- no, I'm kidding. We're not. <laughs> we haven't secured that yet. Um, but if you just want like other things, if you want mugs, T-shirts, Danielle, no one can see this, but Danielle's wearing one of our T-shirts right now. They're, they're stylish. Go over to exactlyrightmedia.com. There's a shop there. You can get everything your hearts desire. And right now, it's also the only place where you can get a signed copy of my book. Totally. And I, that is so awesome. I'm so glad that that exists for everybody. And everybody should read Daniel's book because it's amazing. Next week, we got more doozies. We sure do. Um, do you want to tell them what we're watching? Oh, of course. So our movies for next week are My Beautiful Laundrette from 1985 and... But I'm a cheerleader from 1999. Oh my God. So fun. Can't wait to see those both again. Danielle, as always, it's a pleasure. Thank you for being nice. Thank you for Aww. being kind. Thank you for sticking up for the people of the world that need it. And it was so glad talking to you about murdering fathers. Look, any day of the week. It doesn't even have to be Father's Day. We can talk about it next week, too. <laughs> I'm taking you up on that. (laughs) I'm always ready to talk about a dad who's about to snap. (laughs) See you guys next time. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced and mixed by Casey O'Brien. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit ExactlyRightStore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.